got 12.30, so we're going to get started. Um, I was going to say welcome back, but I'm the one that came back, so welcome to me back. Welcome back. For those that don't know, for the past two weeks I was in India. Um, I, that's why I'm wearing my sweet Indian shirt that my host gave me. It even has pockets in it. How awesome is that? We go, I go with the, my senior pastor down at Good Shepherd every year, and we teach workshops for pastors over in India. So we had two groups of local pastors, village pastors. And um, we, we sometimes were able to take bicycles to them because they bicycle from village to village. They're in a remote area, and they're in the area, uh, it's known as Kandamal, and it's where in 2008 there was severe Christian persecution outbreak. Uh, 50,000 Christians' homes were destroyed and they were displaced. Uh, friends of mine had their relatives uh, killed, hacked to death in front of them, and um, it, was, it was pretty terrible. Well, since then, the church has continued to grow and to thrive. These pastors stayed, went back. Some even reconciled with the persecutors. Some of the persecutors now actually have come to faith. Um, in some of the villages, the Hindu members actually hid the Christians and, and gave them safe haven because of how much they liked them. How, they were friends. These were their people. And, and it, was a, it was an outside group that came in and stirred up a lot of um, nationalist sentiment and so the Christians in Kandamal, which is in the state of Orissa in India on the East Coast, they could definitely use your prayers as always, but we do workshops teaching for local pastors there. So the first week we had about uh, 90 pastors, and the second week we had about 85. They come to, we brought them to a retreat center down at the beach where, um, on the Bay of Bengal, and we did teaching for three days. For each group. So I taught them, I walked through the book of Romans, I did an overview of Romans for them. Last time I went I did Revelation, the time before that I did Genesis, so uh, next time I don't know what I'll do. But, and then my senior pastor taught them things like pastoral ministry, how to prepare a sermon series, how to get the big idea from a passage, how to teach, how to preach. So it was kind of theological and pastoral training that they got. And, and it was really cool. Uh, if you want to see pictures, there on my Facebook page and Instagram. So let me know, and I can tell you where that is. But it was a great trip, great weather, perfect weather. You guys got snowed in here, I think, while we were there. I was on the beach wearing a T-shirt. But um, it, it, it was an amazing trip. And, and it's really cool to see the church in India, how it's growing, where we were. It's about 4% Christian, give or take, between 25 and 5%, which seems really small, but there are a billion people in India. So that's a large number of Christians, just in terms of numbers. And the church there is growing as well, especially where the persecution took place. Um, so I would appreciate your prayers. If you want more information on that, uh, or how you can help, how you can get involved with the Christians that are doing amazing stuff over there, let me know. But we're back, and we're picking up in Exodus. We left, would have been three weeks ago. It's been crazy with the weather, snow closings, and then last week there was some confusion, and uh, so apologize for all that, but we're back in Exodus, ready to pick up, keep going, and we're in Exodus chapter 4, the second half of it. <clears throat> now, if you need a recap, Go on my website, or actually go on YouTube, Disciple Dojo channel, and the videos from all the previous weeks are on there, so you can watch them each week. But the brief recap 
Uh, God had called Moses when he was at Mount Sinai in Midian, tending his father's sheep. God called him and said, you're going to go back to Egypt. You're going to redeem or you're going to rescue my people. And I'm going to do these uh, signs in front of Pharaoh and, uh, and in front of the people, and you'll bring them out. And, and so it was just Moses and God had this kind of back and forth, like, ah, I don't think I can do it. And God systematically took away all of his excuses. And so finally, Moses uh, was uh, reluctantly agreed. And so we end in chapter, we ended in chapter 4, verse 17. So we're going to pick up in verse 18 here. And it says, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. Means the previous Pharaoh and his forces. So Moses took his wife and his sons, two sons. At this point, he has two sons. Gershom is his oldest, and Eliezer is the second son. He put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Uh, all throughout Exodus, the staff of God is going to be the primary means by which God accomplishes his things. Like the staff, every time, you know, Moses will say, stretch out your staff over the land of Egypt. Stretch out your staff over the waters of Egypt. Put your staff into the sea. You'll see the staff come up a lot, and because... A person's staff was like their signet. It was like their passport. It was like their driver's license. It was their sign of authority. So God doing these things through this staff of Moses uh, is, is basically God lending his authority to Moses throughout this entire Exodus. And if you saw the Exodus movie that came out a while back, um, it was it was pretty god-awful. But uh, it was well-made, but just <laughs> theologically it was horrible. They made a distinct, uh, made a specific decision in the movie. When Moses goes back to Egypt, he leaves his staff at the mountain and takes his sword. And throughout the movie, he's this general military guerrilla fighter instead of what the Bible account is, which is he's going to do everything through God's power, through the staff. It just shot out to me when I was watching it. And I was like, well, that's all right. You left the text uh, at that point. The staff is God's authority. It's God's power. It's not a magical staff because Moses doesn't have to be doing it. Uh, it's God's staff. It's called the staff of God, Matei Elohim in Hebrew. So just notice it when you see it throughout Scripture. Um, and and it, it, it becomes almost symbolic uh, in the Old Testament. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Right? That's a sign of God's presence and his authority with his people. One point worth noting is at the beginning when he says he went back to Jethro and he asked permission to leave. Now Moses just got appointed by God Almighty. A burning bush theophany just appeared, gave him temporary leprosy in his hand, with hand in and out of the cloak, gave him a staff that turns into a snake, you know, showed him the miracles, showed him, told him what he's going to do, and then Moses goes back and asks permission from Jethro. Why does he do that? Because even within this situation, there's, there's a sense of, of family propriety. And Moses is a man under authority, even under God's authority, but he's also under the authority of his father-in-law because the father-in-law would have been the head of the clan. He would have been the one who oversees the protection of his livestock. And Moses was a higher hand at this point. So the call of God on his life 
did not negate the need for him to show proper submission to authority, earthly authority, to, to do the polite thing, not just take his family and go or run off and go, kind of like he does in the movie. Um, so I think that's, a, that's an insight that carries throughout Scripture is God is the ultimate authority, but then he puts us under earthly authorities. And what you'll find in Scripture is the people who are the closest to God are usually the ones who try to, try their best to get along under or live under earthly authority as best they can. Only when there's a conflict, only when it's, it's choose one or the other, do they then choose God over the earthly authority. But in India, I got to talk about this in Romans 13 and how Paul talks about to the Roman Christians how they're to live under their rulers and their authorities. And his advice that Paul gives throughout his letters to families, to, to husbands and wives, to you know, be under authority and, and to honor your mother and your father. And, and Jesus lived under the authority of his parents as well, even though he was the son of God. Um, so there's a sense that, and I think it's something that Christians today need to hear because we tend to think, well, if God's talking to me, I don't need to listen to anybody. I don't stand under anybody's authority because Holy Spirit and I have got something, that, you know, we're, we've got our thing. So I'll just go my own way. I don't, I don't need to go be under teaching authority. I don't need to be in the community, uh, um, accountability. I don't need any of that. It's just me and God because I'm the Lone Ranger prophet. And, and if anybody could have claimed that in the Old Testament, it would have been Moses. The man who God talked with face to face. But Moses here, it's a neat little thing. He, he intentionally uh, goes and makes it right before he leaves, before he sets off to do what he knows God has called him to do. So I think there's a lesson in there for all of us as well. But then it goes on, um, go back to Egypt, takes, took the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21 the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. And that word is not worship, actually. That word is serve. If you have an NIV, it says worship. But that is the Hebrew word abad. It means to serve. There's, a, there's, a, there's an image, an ironic image going on. What is Israel doing in Egypt? They're serving Pharaoh. What does God want to do? Free them to serve him. You know, the old song, everybody's got to serve somebody. God doesn't liberate his people from service into nothing. He takes them from one bad master into the true and the good master. And so instead of worshiping in Egypt with their gods, they come to worship Yahweh at the mountain of God. So it's a, it's a kind of a wordplay or, or an ironic symbolism there. But let my people go um, so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So God's logic here is go to Pharaoh and tell him, Israel is my firstborn son. This is the first time in the Bible Israel is described as God's son. The people Israel are described as an individual the son. This is huge ramifications in biblical theology. Before Israel was a people, he was a person named Israel. Now, at the beginning of the nation's birth, they're described as a single person, Israel. This makes sense, or will help you make sense of all of the New Testament where people are talked about as being in Israel, or being God's firstborn. 
Um, all of the language of being sons, being heirs to the promises in Abraham, in Israel, it's this collective singularity language that traces all the way back to Genesis and then here in Exodus. Israel is the firstborn son. Israel came out of Egypt as a baby. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Israel crossed the waters of the Jordan at their baptism, that's what they call it. Israel did all of these things. Then in the New Testament, when you come to it, you start reading and you start reading about this guy named Jesus. And he comes out of Egypt as a baby. And he goes in the desert for 40 days. And he has his baptism at the Jordan. He has 12 disciples. He, you know, and, and you start seeing these connections. And Matthew in particular, you really see it. And, and it's like the gospel writers are trying to scream out at you. Jesus is the firstborn son of God. Jesus is what Israel was called to be but failed to do. Jesus is the Israel. Not the new Israel, not the different Israel. He is the Israel. As Paul will say in Romans 9 through 11, he is the root or the, 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 branch, the trunk of the tree and all the branches grow out of him. Uh, and, and wild branches, Gentiles are grafted into him. So there's a lot of biblical theology in this that's going to play out in the rest of the Bible. But that is a huge point that gets overlooked. Israel is God's firstborn son. God is depicted as like a protective parent in this passage. Pharaoh has enslaved, has mistreated, has even attempted genocide against God's firstborn son for 400 years. So now God's patience, so to speak, has come to an end. His timing has come to its fullness. God doesn't act arbitrarily. Like some people say, they don't know the story of the Bible. They just read through passages and they go, oh, God's so mean. Oh, he's going to kill Pharaoh's son. That's so mean. Why would he do that? There's a big meta narrative going on. There's a big story going on. And what God is instilling into the world, because everybody's going to be reading this and seeing these events, is that God and God alone has the right of life over the firstborn. In Israel, in chapter, I think it's chapter 18, no, chapter 13, when, you, when we get to chapter 13, God will even tell Israel, whenever you have a firstborn son, you have to redeem that son by taking an offering to the temple. And that offering takes the place of the firstborn son because the firstborn son belongs to me. All firstborn children belong to God. And so it, it, there's this ceremony where the Israelites would take an animal, give it to the temple, sacrifice it, uh, have a fellowship meal, and that was them literally buying back their son from God. That was what that symbolized. And so God is saying in this, he's setting up this paradigm that the firstborn is of preeminent importance, and there's a lot of, of um, symbolism. There's a lot of importance that goes into the firstborn, the line of the firstborn, carrying on the family heritage. And so you've got it pictured where Pharaoh is oppressing the firstborn, and it's God's firstborn son. So God is going to redeem, he's going to bring out his firstborn son from underneath Pharaoh, and it will cost Pharaoh his own firstborn son life for life. And later in the, after the Exodus, that will be symbolized or, or brought about or remembered by the offering that they would all take, the Israelites, to the temple, where they would redeem their firstborn son. So because God in, is ultimately the author of all life and is the only one who has the right to take, to give and to take, um, no human being stands on the same footing with God in terms of that right. And so, uh, he talks about, I will harden his heart. This is the first time we read of that. 
And this, this throws a lot of people and raises all these discussions about you know, free will and you know, God hardening his heart. And, and some people have trouble with this and they read it and they say, well, you know, God, God's saying he's going to make Pharaoh be bad and keep the Israelites. So why does he punish Pharaoh? You know, it's like Pharaoh doesn't have a choice. If God says, I'm going to harden your heart, then he can't not let them. I mean, he can't, he has to hold them and not let them go because God's the one hardening his heart. And it's, this is where it's helpful to realize how Hebrew language works. Um, the phrase to harden the heart occurs probably a dozen or so times throughout the narrative, but sometimes it's, it's spoken of as God hardened his heart or God says, I will harden his heart. Other times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart or Pharaoh and the Egyptians hardened their hearts. Uh, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 it will say that. And then sometimes it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It uses like a passive tense or describing of the state of his heart. So sometimes God's the hardener, sometimes Pharaoh's the hardener, sometimes his heart's just hard. What do we do with all that? Well, in Hebrew, it's all very fluid, and it's kind of all the same way of saying God is in sovereign control, but Pharaoh is also contributing to this freely. Because remember, this is the king of Egypt who has, has oppressed Israel for 400 years, who, whose father tried to wipe out all the males with this genocidal act of throwing them in the Nile. It's not like Pharaoh was a really awesome guy and God just said, I'm going to make you evil. Rather, the word to harden in Hebrew is, or strengthen it's sometimes called, or to make heavy, what it means is three different words that are used. What it means is the sense of, think of a potter. When you're making, anybody ever made pottery in here with the wheel, when you take the clay, it's really soft and you mold it and you, you know, like if you've seen ghosts, you do the, <laughs> it's really like fluid and Patrick Swayze's holding you while you're doing it. No. But it's, so it's really soft and it's really malleable. If you get it wrong, it just kind of flops all over the place and you have to crumble and restart. It's very malleable, it's changeable. But when you're done and you want to finalize it, what do you do? You take that soft clay vessel and you put it into a furnace and it hardens. It doesn't change the shape of it. It doesn't make it from a vase into an ashtray or vice versa. What it was going in is what it is coming out. The difference is that's what it is and it's set. And it's either fit for good use or for destruction. That's the image that Jeremiah will use. That's the image Isaiah will use. That's the image that Paul will use in Romans 9. That's the image of God in the Bible is Pharaoh's heart was what it was because it was that way. Pharaoh made it that way and God's saying, I'm going to confirm what he already is. I'm going to use his stubbornness, his hard-heartedness. He's, he is that way already. So I'm going to actually use that to show my power over all of the people of Egypt and all the gods of Egypt. Because ultimately, this is a contest. The Exodus is a contest between God of Israel and the gods of Egypt, who were symbolized by Pharaoh himself, who was seen as the firstborn of the sun god. So it's a, it's a, it's a cosmic Contest and God's saying, "I'm going. We're going to put it on full display. Everybody's going to see. It's going to be a pay-per-view main event. Everybody's going to see. I'm going to take on the gods of Egypt, and I'm going to do it through a shepherd and his staff. And so that's the the what's set up. So don't get too bogged down with the hardening of soul. Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Did God harden his heart? Yes, both. And God's sovereign over this hard heartedness, which God has already taken into account." in order to get his will done.
So it's this, it's this um, you, you gotta hold both, sovereignty of God, free choice of humans. And if you let one go, then you end up with a hard Calvinism. If you let the other go, you end up with a hard Arminianism. And you really kind of want to hold them both equally because Scripture does that. So God says, uh, as I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your first, I will kill your firstborn son. Is God's warning that he's going to give to Pharaoh. Now, right on the heels of that, it says, verse 24, 24 through 26 is this weird story. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and was about to kill him. Now, NIV says Moses, but it puts it in brackets to let you know that Moses is not in the Hebrew text. It says him. And I think that this is a good point where the NIV gets it wrong. Uh, I don't think the him is Moses. I think it's his son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, circumcised him, and touched his feet with it. Not say Moses, it's his. Surely you were a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Now this is a strange story. God's commissioned Moses. He said, you're going to go. Moses has got permission from his father-in-law. They're on their way. They're in a lodging place somewhere in Midian, in, you know, in the middle of the night, stop for rest. And the text says, the Lord appeared and sought to kill Moses. Now, there's some wordplay continuities because God had said, go back to Egypt because the people who have sought to kill you are dead now. But ironically, now God's going to be the one that seeks to kill him. And also, God has just said, I'll kill Pharaoh's firstborn son, and now he shows up, and most commentators part with the NIV on this, and they say, no, the him is Moses' firstborn son. God shows up to kill his firstborn son. Because, why? Moses' firstborn son, we find out, wasn't circumcised. If he, and, and possibly some commentators think, say that Moses wasn't circumcised, and so this was his own circumcision. But he was raised by Hebrews, and he was raised in Egypt, and both of those cultures practiced circumcision. Um, Midianite culture did not practice circumcision until the person got old enough to marry or either uh, enter into puberty. So it was like a rite of passage thing, like a, a trial of manhood, uh, which is it's just awful. <laughs> trial. But in, in a lot of the ancient cultures that did circumcision, which was most of them, it was used as a rite of passage. You would do it on an older teenager as they were moving into manhood. Egyptians would do like kind of a halfway circumcision, and, and it would be, be called in Joshua the reproach of Egypt, uh, the mark of being an Egyptian. So there's possibly that maybe Moses wasn't fully circumcised, but given that he was raised for the first three months as a Hebrew, and the circumcision would happen on the eighth day, it was more likely that Moses was circumcised. And what's going on is his son is not circumcised because he had his son in Midian, with a Midianite, the daughter of a pagan high priest of Midian, and circumcision was a Hebrew ritual. So Moses, and, and Moses wouldn't have remembered his circumcision, so for him, it might not have had much significance. It might have been, oh, that's one of the things that we do as people, but, eh, you know, when in Rome, and I'm not in Rome anymore, so I'm going to not do it. The problem is, in Genesis, those of you who were with us for Genesis, God had said in chapter 17, when he was making the covenant with Abraham, he said, for all your generations, all of your male children will be circumcised on the eighth day. This is the sign of the covenant, the mark that you are the heir to the promises I'm giving to Abraham. So the people of God under the old covenant had to be marked by circumcision. That was them showing solidarity with the Abrahamic promise. So 
the, the warning, 17.4, says any male member of your who is not circumcised will be cut off from his people. And it's a wordplay. You know, anybody that's not cut will be cut. And so God's, God's serious about it, though. If you disobey, if you break the covenant, if you don't choose to be circumcised, if you, it's basically saying this child is not part of the covenant, not heir to the promises of Abraham, and they're to be cut off from their people. That wouldn't have meant death in the Old Testament. It would have meant they go and become a Gentile or a pagan. So at this point, Moses, the leader of all the Israelites, the man commissioned by God himself, has neglected the primary marker of being a child of Abraham in the covenant community. And so God shows up to him, and it uses, it's this, I think it's fascinating, it says God sought to put him to death. It's kind of like, remember Genesis, when God showed up and he wrestles with Jacob? There's this, God enters into this struggle, and he does it willfully. God could have put him to death like that. God could, it wasn't like God tried, oh, I can't quite kill him, because, you know, God could have easily submitted Jacob. He could have tapped him out in a heartbeat. He could easily put Moses' son to death without entering into it, but in these instances, he actually condescends, he comes down, he enters into this, this, this struggle with his people, foundational people who will go on to lead his people. First one was Israel, Jacob, now this is Moses. And he does it, and it shows that one, God is willing to come down and interact. He's not a lofty God that just sits up in heaven and doesn't ever get his hands dirty. Um, two, it shows that the whole idea of being the firstborn is very serious, and that God has the right to take the life of any firstborn because they belong to him, because he is the one who gives all life. It shows that for the man of God, for the servant of God, uh, holiness and, and, and covenant obedience is even more important. So it's almost communicating to the Israelites, hey, even Moses wasn't exempt from having his firstborn son cut off if he rejected the covenant obedience. Even the Israelites who were, who were pure bred, born of the tribes, they, they followed God and they did all that in Israel. If they didn't put the blood of the lamb over their door, their firstborn would have been killed. So God is, is instilling in Exodus this very key concept and he's showing Moses he's serious about this. Even Moses can't presume on God. Even Moses has to live under the covenant. You see this in churches sometimes where pastors or teachers, they get to a certain level of notoriety, and then all of a sudden they're, they're above the ethics of the rest of the congregation. You know, well, the rest of the congregation has to serve and has to tithe, but I don't have to tithe, I don't have to serve, because I am, you know, me and God are like this, and I'm the servant, I'm the master, they're the servant. You see that mentality, and this is a direct uh, refutation of that mindset. That no, no, no. If anything, it's even more important. The higher your status before people in the kingdom, the more important it is for you to be fulfilling all righteousness, as Jesus said at his baptism. So it's a strange story, and people read it. Part of the strangeness comes from the NIV kind of messing up, putting Moses in there, when in reality it was, it was the, I think, I would suggest, and you can read the commentaries if you want, but that it, he was seeking the life of Moses' firstborn son, just as he said he would take the life of Pharaoh's firstborn son, and just as he said Israel was his firstborn son. So read through it, think what you will, come to your own conclusions, but it's a strange story, but it has to do with God is serious about his covenant. The God of Exodus is serious about his holiness and his people's holiness. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, God will hold Israel to an even higher standard than he holds the pagan nations. And when the pagan nations repent, God will relent on his judgment and allow them to actually come into and be part of Israel. People like Rahab and Ruth. But when the pagan, when the Israelites presume on their identity and, and skirt the uh, demands of God, then God has no qualms about cutting them off. Physically, like through death, like Korah's rebellion or Achan when he takes the treasures uh, later in uh, the Torah. Or in the Old Testament as a whole, when Israel disobeys God and turns to idolatry, God will actually literally remove them from the land that he brought them into. So it's a principle that God's own people are not exempt from God's judgment. And, and it's, it's a, that's what this little story, I think, captures really strangely but really well. So then after that, verse 27 Oh, and, and Zipporah, she, uh, she, it's, it's, once again, Moses is saved by a woman in the book. We remember this has already happened multiple times. That women have been the saviors and kept God's plan moving. Um, you know, the midwives fooling Pharaoh or the, Moses' sister going to get his mom and Pharaoh's daughter. So women have been the saviors throughout Exodus. And here, once again, not just a woman, but a Gentile woman who is the one who, who performs, who does what Moses should have done a long time ago, which is performs the ritual circumcision, thus saying, you are truly my, my groom, and it's sealed in blood. I mean, you, we are one flesh, one blood. That's what that, your bridegroom of blood. Um, it's, it's, this is solemn. This is real. I, we are in the line of Abraham, the promised people, the bloodline of, of the promise. So, um, Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, this is meanwhile, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God, which is Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and he kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything that the Lord, and kisses, we've said in Genesis, kissing is a greeting in the ancient Near East, and it's almost always between men, which kind of makes us squirm, but that's what it was in the Bible days. Um, and uh, Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him, and also about the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron then gathered all the elders of the children of Israel, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. So they went back to Goshen from Midian, back to where into Egypt, they gathered the elders. Uh, he also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them or was visiting them or was paying attention to them, it can be translated in different ways, um, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So this is another interesting key way to end this chapter is the elders see it, and it says they believe. It's the same word that used of Abraham when he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Hebrew verb aman to believe, to put their trust in, and they worshiped him. They believed and they worshiped. And that's gonna be the pattern that God wants for all of the Israelites, to see the signs, to believe, and to worship. And he wants the Egyptians to do the same thing, to see the signs, to believe, and to worship. And a number of Egyptians will do that, and they'll come up with Israel out of Egypt, a mixed multitude, because they believed and they saw and they worshiped. And so this is a pattern of what God wants for the world and what he wants to do through Israel is, is to reveal himself. And so it ends on a pretty positive note. However, once hardship sets in, that obedience and believing is gonna be put to the test. 
and Israel will be in danger of failing that test many times throughout the rest of the book and the entire book of Numbers. Uh, so we are one minute over, so we're going to end there. Next week we'll pick up chapter 5, uh, so come ready to learn and see what happens. If you want uh, some resources to have available for sale, if you like this study, you want some more, you want to look at things like Revelation or how do you interpret the Bible, all that kind of stuff, buy some resources. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks.